everybody and welcome to this week's bible breakdown we are coming to the end of an era here on the bible breakdown we are at the very end of acts so we have had some stories from acts for a pretty long time so we're getting here to the end of the book which is fun because i think it's been fun how much we've gotten to cover of it and the narratives and um we just learn really well through stories so i've i've enjoyed the going through acts and reading about the disciples reading about Paul, especially here in the latter half, um, and getting to learn from them, learn from what they did and see the miracles that God did through them has been really, really fun for me. Um, so Paul, if you remember from our last lesson, he has appealed to Caesar um, and he's gotten a chance to testify before a couple of, before a governor, and then a second governor, and then a random king and queen that aren't like real king and queen. But anyways, he gets to share about Jesus with all of these people. So that was good. But during the midst of that, he uses his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to Caesar. And the governor said to Caesar, you shall go. So he is going to be on his way there. Um, so you are going to see in Acts, it's chapters 27 and 28. I don't think I mentioned that. You're going to see a little bit in 27 and 28, some we language um, that we've started to see a little bit toward the end of Acts. So uh, apparently Luke, who is the author of this, so he authored the Gospel of Luke, and then the book of Acts, which uh, most scholars treat as kind of just a one unit, and they will often refer to it as Luke-Acts. Now we know that the part where we're talking about Jesus and in the gospel, and then doing this kind of church history almost, we recognize the differences between them, which is why they're not just one giant volume stuck in there. It makes sense to separate them for the purposes of kind of how we think in categories, but nonetheless, he wrote it all. And so Luke was there with him for this part of the journey. So some of the detail I think you get in these chapters, detail which I'm not going to belabor, a lot of it is very ship-centric. I don't know a lot about ships. I don't know if you do or not. If you do, this would, you know, if you love ships or you know somebody who loves ships but would not generally be interested in reading the Bible, this might be a good a good starting point because there's some fun ship action in this one but anyways all that to say that may be the reason that luke has so much detail he was there uh he experienced it spoiler alert the ship stuff does not go super well so i'm sure the uh terror sealed some of these memories in his mind um but that's what we're going to see here is paul's going to be sailing there is going to be some difficult weather they're going to deal with and at the end of this we'll see how paul comes out right? I don't want to spoil it all. Um, so one thing too about kind of a ship narrative in this time of the world, it's got some significance for a person whose life is tested at sea. So David Williams is a commentator on the book of Acts. He says to survive a test of life at sea was to be portrayed as righteous. So for you to go through a sea kind of epic, think like the Odyssey, for you to come out on the other side showed your righteousness. So that's kind of interesting. Well, part that colors our story here. So like I said, Paul is sailing for Rome. He's going to kind of, here in the first part of the chapter, he's going to kind of hop between some different ships that are going different places again. I'm not going to belabor all those details, but starting in verse nine of chapter 27, we see this. It says, since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, 
Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. That last verse, I think, seems fairly obvious if you didn't know really who Paul was or a lot of his story. I think that if I were in the same situation, I'd probably be listening to the owner of the ship and the person driving the ship rather than the prisoner from Jerusalem on opinion, but he didn't know. He didn't know how much Paul knew. So this is kind of some foreshadowing for us what's going to happen. But anyways, he Paul warns that he thinks this voyage is going to be too dangerous, but they don't, don't listen. Um, so they were looking for a suitable port to spend the winter, which this one that they were in uh, was not. So they were trying to get one, kind of like trying to just squeeze it in before the bad weather sets off. But uh, but there is a huge storm. And again, there is a bunch of boat stuff. So between verses 12 and 17, we get a lot of kind of they're starting to run into difficulty and kind of the things that they do to try to get around it ship wise. Um, and then we come to this in verse 18. It says, since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. So just like Paul says, they encounter this difficulty. Lots of cargo is lost. Um, they start to lose hope. And remember, Paul had also said that he feared there'd be a loss of life. So when they see that this happened, they're losing all the cargo. You have to think that they're starting to become fearful for their own lives as well. So you can imagine being on a ship that's having storms just lambasted for days at a time. You can imagine that they would lose hope. It's not like this was some cruise ship where they could just go down to their quarters and, you know, ride it out. Like, it, it was probably very terrifying, very horrible. They're probably all soaked, not getting a lot of sleep, trying to keep this ship together. So after a few days, hope was lost. So what are they going to do? Well, here's what they're going to do. Verse 21, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. So Paul uh, gives them a little bit of encouragement. Um, he also throws a good I told you so in there. I don't think any of us could have resisted the urge. But maybe also he's reminding them like, hey, I was right before, so I'm, I'm probably going to be right this time. But he tells them like, hey, we shouldn't have done this, just like I said. But don't worry. I was wrong before when I was worried about the loss of life because we're all going to be saved. But the ship's going to be destroyed. So he tells them that he ha he's had this vision that they will all survive. So Paul is trusting here that God's going to provide. And I think you, I think we can all realize that it's probably a little easier to trust that God's going to provide when you get a messenger from heaven, right? You see this angel and they tell you you're going to survive. You're like, okay, I'm feeling, I'm feeling better about it than just like hoping uh, that I'm going to. But I think too, that we, 
we have experiences where we feel clearly what God is asking us to do. So I think of the first thing that comes to my mind is anytime there's like some sort of like con- conflict sort of conversation, um, knowing like, oh, I know that I've got to talk to this person, but it's that fear of the outcome, you know? And uh, Paul has the the uh, nice little ad here that he is not only told what to do, but even what the result's going to be. And we don't generally get to know what the results are going to be. But if we are in a situation where we feel strongly, we know the right thing to do. So for me, I think the thing that, like I said, comes up immediately in my mind is some sort of like conflict resolution conversation for you. It may be um, something else, maybe something with finances, work, whatever it may be. If we feel like we know exactly what we're supposed to do and we feel like that's from the Lord, then really we don't have to be worried about the possible consequences, right? If that's what the Lord is calling us to, then we know that even if there are difficulties in the aftermath, that it was the right thing to do. So it's, I think it's easy for us to look at this story and say, well, of course he was confident. He got this messenger from heaven who told him everybody's going to survive. Yeah, he did. And that's pretty handy, but we have the Holy Spirit also. Paul had the Holy Spirit, so do we. And so when we feel like the Holy Spirit is guiding us somewhere, even if we may not see that end result, like Paul was able to hear, we should be able to have that same confidence to say, okay, no, I know this is what I need to do. I know that the Lord is going to take care of me, even if it may not be in the way I would have chosen. I can imagine that Paul would not have chosen to have the ship destroyed while surviving. I think he probably would have chosen to for the storm to go away and then be able to just sail like normal to wherever they were going. But that's what happens. So by the end of this little section, they are realizing they're getting close to land. Um, that happens in verses 27 through 29. They're like, okay, we're getting close to land. And so in 30, we see some people are going to try to get out a little bit early. Verse 30 says, And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. So some guys are trying to hedge their bet a little bit, and they're going to try and get in the lifeboat and row away now that they know uh, it's getting a little bit more shallow. They're getting closer to land. They're starting to get a little worried about some obstacles as they get closer to land. So they're trying to do that. They, I guess, apparently get caught. And Paul tells the centurion, same centurion who ignored his advice earlier, he tells them if they don't stay in the ship, you can't be saved. So what do they do? They cut away the lifeboat. So they don't hold on to the lifeboat for this uh, to possibly happen again. Um, but instead, they get rid of the lifeboat at Paul's encouragement. So things are changing there on the ship. And remember, Paul's a prisoner on this ship. He's not like the you know, the first mate or something like that. He's He's just a prisoner on the ship. He's obviously begun to show the how that he is unique that he serves a unique god that he's not just a guy who knows about boats or things like that but that he's got kind of an ace up his sleeve and he's told him the god whom i worship told me and so they're starting to to buy in so they do what paul tells them to and uh, the guys do not get to escape as they get close to land so then um, as the chapter in or as we move into the next paragraph um, paul tells them to uh, take some food he, uh, he prays for them, which they find very encouraging. 
And it says in verse 37, there were 276 people on this boat. So it was a pretty significant group of people that we're talking about here. And then what happens? Shipwrecks, just like he said it would. Said that the ship would be lost, but no loss of life. And that's what happens. So they wreck. Um, the ship gets stuck. And then the waves start kind of beating onto the boat and breaking it apart. So um, they, the centurion tells them, if you can swim, swim. If you can't, grab onto some of the wreckage and float on your way. So that's what they do. And they all survived. All 276 soldiers, prisoners, captains, centurions. First mate, whoever it was, wasn't Paul. They all survive and they go to an island called Malta. So that's kind of where they run aground. They basically run into these kind of these native people. You can imagine kind of some sort of like maybe like King Kong or something where they go to the island and it's like, oh, who are these people? That's basically what they get is they see some, I guess, indigenous people there and uh, they bring them in, which is nice. You know, you never know when you're crashing on an island and you're meeting these strange people, how they're going to respond, but they responded positively. They welcome them in. Uh, Paul, being a sweetheart that he is, he gathers some firewood, but then, uh-oh, gets bit by a snake. So uh, it says it latched onto his hand. Verse three, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks, put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened onto his hand. So the people are, you know, they know what kind of snake this is. And they're just like, all right, I guess we should wait for him to die. They start to um, assume that he must have done something wrong. And in verse four, it says, no doubt this man is a murderer, though he escaped from the sea. Justice has not allowed him to live. So they're just kind of waiting for him to get sick and to die. Um, but he doesn't. And he says he shook the creature off and suffered no harm. So they're kind of like, okay, there's something special about this guy. And so instead they decided that he's a God. So he went from murderer in their eyes to God in their eyes in a short amount of time. Of course, we know he was neither. And uh, instead, it's kind of the irony that takes over the rest of his time at Malta. Um, there's a perfect, there's a person that um, is sick. So a, a chief, uh, his father was sick and he actually heals the chief's father. And then he heals a bunch of other people. So they start bringing people that are sick and he starts healing them. So instead of him getting sick, he starts healing people that are sick. And this is, I think, really just shows, again, like this gives um, just credibility and glory to God that Paul, this man who says, this is the God whom I serve, is um, showing that God is protecting him. He's showing trust in God. Um, he's showing faith in God. And God is working powerfully through him in, on this island. And this island, I mean, think about this too. I hadn't thought about this till just right this instant, but they crash on this island. They're, they've got no plans to stop at this island. Instead, um, they stay there a whole winter and people are shown who God is on this, on this island of Malta. And so people get to see the glory of God. So we see God's uh, mercy, his, his grace, his uh, omnipotence, his wonderful plan all playing out and how this happened. Again, Paul probably would never have chosen it, but we see that he's obedient even in the midst of very difficult suffering and that God has brought glory, not only to the people on the ship, but even the people who interact with them after their wreck. So um, then Paul, who's been talking about it for several chapters, he finally makes it to Rome. 
Um, so he is met by some of the says some of the brothers, um, which would refer to believers. So we know that Paul wrote a letter to Rome, right? He wrote Romans. Um, he actually wrote that letter before he'd ever met the people in Rome. So that's kind of interesting. That's kind of how they knew about Paul. That's really all they had of him. And I say that's all that they had. I mean, Romans is a magnificently written letter. But uh, they so he's met by believers there and he sets up a meeting as he typically does when he goes to a new city, even though it's almost never successful, he sets up a meeting with some of the Jewish leaders. And it's the same story as every time he goes to the synagogues, there's a couple who believe, but for the most part, they reject him. They reject how he has chosen to interpret uh, Jesus' life and who Jesus was. And they think that um, he is falling away from the faith. So, um, now we're in chapter 28. Um, this has been kind of chapter 28. Now in verse 25, this is after he's met the, uh, the Jewish leaders and kind of been rejected by them. He says, or it says, and disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right and saying to your fathers through, the, through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears, they can barely hear and their eyes. They have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So, that's kind of how Paul's story ends. I don't know. That's where that's where the book ends. That's really that's all the scripture we get on Paul's life. So we know that he's going to write letters um, while he's in prison. So I guess not fully all, but as far as the narrative goes, um, we don't get any scripture that tells us if he finally got to see Caesar or things like that. Um, there's different historical accounts. Um, I have not studied them very deeply, so I will not um, pretend to know a lot of what they say. But this is what we get as far as our narrative of Paul. And can you imagine how much that last verse is probably really encouraging? He shared Jesus with with all boldness and without hindrance. Ah, first time ever for Paul. No hindrance in his ability to share Jesus. So that's what he does. He is imprisoned at his own expense, which is kind of a bummer. Um, he's been in prison now because remember he was two years in Caesarea and then this whole journey and then now it's two years um, in Rome. So a lot of prison time for him. And um, that's his story. That's the end of Acts. That's how it ends. Um, and I think if we just look back on all of Paul's life, which we get, we kind of start to get a piece of in uh, chapter seven, when he's at the stoning of Stephen, I think it's, it's either seven or eight. And then of course he has his Damascus road experience um, that starts in chapter nine. And then a lot of the rest of Acts, we'll, we hear Paul. So we get a large, a large swath of his life. And then of course his epistles. Um, but really what we see is there are a few things about Paul's life. One is, is a life of faithfulness. Paul was incredibly faithful to the call he received on the Damascus road. He was incredibly faithful to never stop proclaiming Jesus. He clearly was absolutely convinced and convicted that this was the truth that this is what his life's purpose was. And we have a lot to learn from his faithfulness and resolve. Um, you have to think that Paul's kind of a personality that once he's, 
once he's got a clear mission in mind, he's going to accomplish it. I think there's a few things about his life that even before Jesus that we see that that was kind of just the type of person he was. So he exhibits this, this life of faithfulness, of obedience to God. We also see he exhibits a life of suffering. So he's very faithful and he experiences suffering just about at every turn. Um, you may remember, I talked about it when we went through this, but it's been several weeks. Um, but in Acts 9, 15, Ananias is asking God about Saul. He's like, are you sure about this? And it says, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So this was kind of a foreshadowing and, and Paul's life uh, exhibits that to great degree. Uh, we see it, you know, we've got the shipwreck here this week and we've seen he's been imprisoned. Um, he's been stoned. He's been imprisoned more. He's escaped a few times. Um, he's gone to his own people. His own people have rejected him, have tried to kill him. So many plots to kill him. Um, he's traveled far and wide. Um, he's experienced the, the pain of what it's like to grow close to a group of people, then leave. Um, Paul's life had quite a bit of suffering. But also the third thing that I think we see from Paul's life is strongly connected to that. He lived a life that glorified God. Paul did all these things for the sake of the gospel. He did these things for the sake of people knowing who Jesus was. And those instances in which he was suffering, those times in which he faced great trial, often were some of the most fruitful that he had in his ministry. You think of all the circumstances that led to uh, what we talked about last time, just with his imprisonment, being in prison for two years, he got the opportunity to share before two governors, a king and a queen uh, about Jesus. He got the opportunity to share with all these people on this ship, 276 people, um, because of the suffering that they went through. They, he had an audience. He had the ability to have really a captive audience. They were going nowhere. Um, and he used all these instances in his life not to complain or to feel sorry for himself, but he used them to bring glory to God. Even when he's going to be in prison in Rome, he's going to write letters to bring glory to God. And I think that's one of the biggest things that we can take away from Paul's life is that sometimes God can be most glorified in our suffering. But sometimes God's glory is most magnified in our life, not when everything's going well, but when things are going very poorly. And I don't think we often think about that, but I think some of the stories that really stick with us and some of the experiences that really stick with us are in the midst of suffering. And that's where we see that God can be most glorified in us is when we are suffering and we're suffering well. Not that we're suffering and um, being really fixated on the suffering, but that we're suffering well in a way that does bring glory to him. And I think some questions we have to ask ourselves, one, are we willing to obey to the point of suffering and rejection? Um, there were plenty of times for Paul to turn back and to not press forward. Um, there were times when people said, please don't go to Jerusalem. We know what awaits you there. He said, I know that's what awaits me and that I'll be in prison, but it's what I have to do. It's what God's calling me to. Are we willing to obey to the point of suffering and rejection? Do we know clearly enough what God wants us to do? And are we willing to 
actually do it. Um, I think for us, some things that we will face, we'll face social suffering. I think that we've all experienced that to a degree. Uh, maybe people don't like you, think you're strange, you're a little too into the whole Jesus thing. This is one that's subtle, but really can be hurtful. Maybe you've got friends or family that um, maybe before you really took your faith seriously, or maybe even before you knew Jesus, that they were one way. And now that they know you're kind of serious about Jesus, there's kind of a distance, you know, whether that's friends or family, they're not really interested in being confronted with how much you love Jesus, how much Jesus means to you, how much you talk about Jesus. There's this distance. Um, yeah, it's not a shipwreck, but that's hard when people that are really important to you for your, because of your faith in Jesus, how you live it out, and that they may not want to be around you. Now, we don't want to be people who are driving people away because of how we act and we just so happen to follow Jesus. But I think there are, are times when people are just uncomfortable with um, how much we care about Jesus. And we hope that we're on the right side of that and that we're not just being off-putting. Um, but there's social suffering. Are you willing to endure that um, in those times when God's calling you to that, that you be bold for his name, that you be bringing glory to his name? And, you know, maybe people don't really care for it that much. Um, physical suffering. Do we recognize God and the opportunity for his glory in our physical suffering? Maybe that's through illness. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe financial and it affects the physical, you know, um, there are times when circumstances dictate that, yeah, the finances are starting the same and there's some suffering in that. There's some loss in that. Um, and we can compare ourselves to others and say, oh, boo-hoo, they didn't have this. They didn't have that. But reality is when our our lives change and we have differences in our finances, like it's felt and it makes a difference. But are we willing to see that, whether it be finances, sickness, um, injury, are we willing to see that as an opportunity to glorify God? Are we recognizing that in our sickness, in our difficulties that we experience physically, that God can be brought much glory when we respond in a way that says, you know, I may not have this that I is a high value to me, whether that's a possession or even, you know, just good health. Um, but I recognize that this is for God's glory. Can we be to, to a place where we legitimately feel that way and are able to bring glory to God in that? Or even in emotional suffering, can we recognize how sufficient God is in our deep hurts? Um, sometimes I think our really deep hurts can become idols of sorts to us. And what I mean by that is um, we're not willing to surrender them. We're not willing to let them go. Um, maybe, you know, it's some, some hurt that really motivates you and that hurt has become very valuable in a way. And I know that sounds counterintuitive, but sometimes whether it be in, you know, hurts that are uh, of other people's doing or even sin in our own lives, um, sin exists in these hurts, they remain because often we find some value in them. Sometimes we just can't shake them. Sometimes we have a lot of trouble shaking deep hurts, deep emotional wounds, um, hardships, addictions, things of that nature. Uh, but sometimes there's sin in our lives that um, we recognize its value. And so it hangs around because it brings us something that we want. Even if we can't maybe even fully articulate what that is, we recognize that maybe this hurt I experienced um, that's motivating me. Maybe I kind of like keeping it around because it's really spurred me on to great heights. I think that's something, are we willing to let God 
be sufficient in our deep hurts? Are we willing to surrender those to what God wants to do uh, in us and through those hurts? So those are just some things that I've thought up. And I think that as I look at all those questions, I want to say, yes, 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 absolutely. I'm willing to allow God to be glorified in my suffering through that. But if I'm honest with how my life plays out, there's times of yes. And there's a lot of times of no, like, no, I don't feel like God is sufficient in this hurt. No, I don't recognize God in this difficulty. And no, I don't want to suffer for the glory of God so that people think I'm weird or they don't like me or they're distant from me. Just being honest, that's my my flesh there. But my hope is for myself and my hope is for you if you can, uh, if you also feel that way about yourself sometimes that that we can just grow and grow and grow into surrender every day, moment by moment, just surrendering to God's will, to who he is, to what he wants to do in our lives, to how he wants to be glorified in our lives, because we we want God to be glorified because we want people to know him. He deserves the glory. That's why God wants to be glorified in our hurts, because he deserves it. And if he deserves it, if he's the one who need, if he's the one who deserves that attention, that glory, we should want to give it to him, because then other people can be in the situation where we are, where it's not just a hurt for the sake of a hurt, where it's not just a difficulty for the sake of a difficulty, but that there can be a grander purpose to it. And that it can be this cycle of we reveal God in our hurts so other people can reveal God in their hurts until everybody can see who our God is. So looking at the life of Paul, I think we see that exemplified so well. And I've been grateful for our study of Acts just to have that example and uh, most grateful just that we have the Holy Spirit who even in those times where it feels difficult and where we maybe don't feel 100% assured that the Holy Spirit is guiding us, uh, changing us, uh, transforming us into the image of Christ, all to the glory of God.